0: Representation matters everywhere in media, public leadership, voting. Unrepresented, the podcast, explores representation and inclusion through a variety of themes and platforms, through the voices of those working on the front lines for equity. Today on Unrepresented, I welcome two intellectual and passion executive directors. They are maximizing their skills as leaders of communities of color led nonprofits To navigate youth empowerment during this time of COVID-19. Carl Settles Jr. is the founder and director of E4Youth, an Austin-based nonprofit that bridges the gap between underserved creative youth and creative careers. A former science teacher, Carl was seeing a mismatch between the largest of youth of color populations in Austin and then showing up in the city's most creative and exciting careers after high school graduation. He is been bridging that gap with professional development, soft skills curriculum, and after-school enrichment services to the city's most underestimated youth. Dr. Joanna Moya Fabregas received her undergraduate degree in Latin American Studies in French from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and her doctorate in history at Indiana University Bloomington. She not only works to promote the mission of her organization Comi Madre, which is to empower Latina students and their families by breaking down barriers to success, but she has lived it, an immigrant herself, living in four Latin American countries and her parents becoming her biggest advocates for her advanced education. And who am I? I'm Laura Donnelly. I'm one of the founders of Latinitas, an Austin, Texas-based nonprofit focused on empowering all girls to innovate using media and technology. We also founded the, still, the only and the first magazine made for and by young Latinas. Welcome to Unrepresented. Welcome back to the podcast, Unrepresented, presented by Latinitas. We're an Austin-based nonprofit that empowers all girls to innovate using media and technology, um, we like to use this podcast to explore issues of inclusion. Of course, uh, at and everyone's forefront is the COVID virus, um, but it is especially impactful of communities of color. And I welcome my guests today: um, Carl Settles of E for Youth and Joanna Moya. Fabregas of Comi Madre, two other nonprofits in Austin that are really uh, on the ground working with communities of color for uh, to empowerment, workforce development, and college attainment. If you guys could just uh, just share like a, a one sentence description of the work that you do, I welcome you. Uh, Joanna. Do you want to start? Sure. Hi, and thanks for, for inviting us.
1: Um, so Comi Madre, it's a two generation organization that empowers young Latinas and their mothers through education and support services that increase preparedness, participation and success in post-secondary education. So we work with the moms and the daughters. We start working with the students in the sixth grade and follow
0: them all the way through college. Excellent. That two generation experience is so crucial right now. It's really crucial to any kind of organization's success. Um, Carl, do you want to just explain a little bit of what E4Youth is?
2: Sure. Uh, E4Youth is an Austin-based nonprofit. We've been around for over a decade, and we focus primarily on creative workforce development for youth of color ages 16 to 22. We have uh, six clubs that are embedded in majority minority uh, high schools here in Austin, in Manor and Pflugerville. And we also have a partnership with the University of Texas called the Creative Leadership Academy, where we provide uh, employment and uh, professional level training to college age youth of color. And we actually hire um, college students to lead our high school enrichment clubs as well as uh, we have a project called the Austin Digital Heritage Project, where we train and hire students to collect oral histories of um, people of color uh, throughout this area and build or, or curate a, um, a virtual archive. We're calling it the E4 Virtual Archive or EVA. Um, so, yeah, that's
0: beautiful, beautiful. And I couldn't ask for two better guests, better colleagues to discuss, you know, the impact of what's happening right now on, um, I mean, we, uh, it's communities of color in Austin, but you know, it, we share a general experience, probably that could be relatable to, you know, any, any service organization like ours in other cities. Um, I think I want to first ask, uh, you know, you are, we are nonprofits, you are nonprofits that are already serving, uh, marginalized communities. How has that been an asset right now in dealing with the changes that had to take place um, to serve the students that you do and the parents that you do um, during COVID? And then also, what are sort of, you know, what are the, what has become more challenging in that? So, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about how, how nimble we are as organizations and how that's been helpful. And then we can kind of uh, discuss maybe Uh, what's been extra difficult. So yeah, who wants to just jump right in?
2: Um, For us, we are specifically, although we serve all students, uh, 90% of the students, uh, 90 plus percent of students we work with are of color. Um, I think the good thing is, is that we put such a focus on community um, and community building that uh, our motto is teach students and not subjects. And so we've been able to essentially maintain um, our programming. And we also have a lot of uh, background in technology. So it's been relatively seamless um, moving to uh, this, this virtual facing uh, type, type of programming Um, At the same time, because of so many of the disparities, we have students, I have a young lady. uh, She does work for us, uh, but she had to leave to Mexico to go and check on family. Um, And I didn't I didn't hear from her for like two weeks. So I was really worried about what was going on with her. Um, And we have people that have challenges in terms of uh, a lot of times, even us as, as people of color in the nonprofit space and and we've had some success, uh, we have a little bit of privilege. Like we have high speed connections at home and we know that if we uh, just to be able, the luxury of being able to continue to collect a paycheck and sit at home and do work. Um, So, when you're talking to students and they're saying, Hey, my mom had to shut down her salon today. Um, You know, my mom and dad both are, are both now unemployed. Um, And then if you look at the death rates, um, particularly for uh, black folks right now uh, due to COVID uh, 19 uh, we are the ones that are doing all the hard labor. Um, and, and, and we're the ones that are holding up the infrastructure, black and brown folks. We're stocking your shelves. We're cooking your meals. Uh, we're building your high rises. Um, we're there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I want to just touch upon. I mean, he, he said it right, Johanna, <clears throat> that that idea of like a, maybe, you know, Comi Madre shares a similar community as Latinitas, that we have young Latinas that are in our programs, young Latinas that work for our organizations, volunteer for our organizations. That is not an uncommon story. And in fact, I would have to explain sometimes to, uh, you know, I wonder what it's like in other workplaces. Can you come to your boss and say, I have to leave because I'm the only person who has a, you know, a passport and and someone is ill in, in another country. Or I, I'm the sole person to take care of my grandmother. I don't know if that popped out for you, Johanna, as a relatable. I mean, again, we, we have something similar as Carl where, we can move to a virtual space because Latinitas works in tech and works in digital media. That I was very relieved about, but then there's these other nuanced challenges. Um yeah, I'm I'm gonna leave. Yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, for you know, and you were asking about the the advantage or challenge of, you know, being a nonprofit in this in this time and, and what we can do for people. I mean, we our, our service primarily has been always in person and, you know, we we go into the school, so we provide our workshops, you know, it's a social-emotional learning curriculum. We deliver them in the schools with the students and we have out-of-school programming. So we had to quickly, you know, think, how do we go to an online platform to continue to provide services? But before we could even think about what is our programming gonna look like so students receive our support, we had to pivot you know big time and and find out what are the what are the basic needs that you know the families that we serve are have met or are not being met and how can we connect them with those resources so because we have students you know who sometimes are the translators for their family because you know we have moms that have two or three jobs and suddenly they find themselves out of work or if they're an essential worker, they can't be there for the kids. Uh, and so the, the the oldest daughter has to take care of the siblings. And so keeping in mind all of, you know, all the stressors that have been added on people's lives because of COVID-19, especially for somebody of low income and somebody who's an immigrant. I mean, if you throw in the, the layer of, you know, being in undocumented or being a family of mixed status and not having access to a lot of the aid that's out there it, yeah. it gets even more complex so we we what we've been able to do and leverage the the relationships that we built with the family the moms and the daughters to go and do our coordinators have our coordinators are all social workers and they've been calling families checking in and finding out if first, you know, putting together a survey, are your basics needs met, like food, shelter, health, technology, you know, and then trying to quickly serve as a bridge between our families and those resources that might be out there. But what one of the things that our coordinators have been finding out in this process when they call families, they realize that the check ins took, much longer (laughs) than expected and not so much because the fact the mom especially when talking to the mom they wanted to list you know a long laundry list of needs it was that need for air venting talking and just having somebody on the other end listen and and understand you know what their concerns are what has life looked like for them in the last few weeks and that need you know one one big topic here in, in getting through any crisis, and, and certainly a pandemic, is you know how do you manage build resiliency, and how do you feed that resiliency? And I think having those those relationships with our families that we serve, and being able to be that soundboard and to listen to them and to help them navigate this terrain helps with that resiliency. There's a big emotional, you know, mental health component to all of this that. It's hitting those, you know, who are serving in the front lines, those who are essential workers, those who are, you know, marginalized, that it's hitting them harder than other sectors of the population. So our work as a nonprofit doubles and the impact of doing that work also has, you know, an emotional and, you know, way on those who are providing those services, who are also, you know, who are also women of color who can, can connect and, and can feel identified by those who they're serving. So yeah, it's it's there's so many so many you know ramifications of all of this.
0: So when you said check-ins, I uh, you know, it it, it it I feel again, um, we as nonprofit leaders as maybe sort of like ambassadors to certain communities, you know, we are thinking about. Um, how can we sustain and make sure that we stay afloat so that we can continue to provide the services we uh, do? But I am finding the, the majority of my time or my time is better spent in checking in. So if I can check in with the women that work at, you know, at this organization and are doing the, the work on the ground then they're able to better check in on the girls um, and how crucial it is, because I also think. OK, so this this virus put a lens on issues that you and I and Car- we have all been aware of for some time now. The the, the what the digital divide really looks like in real time, um, how it affects basic need experiences um, so that I'm grateful for that maybe that is being amplified at the same time. You know, a traditional check in or a traditional like, are you okay? I don't know if that's even enough for the communities, um, whether I'm talking about staff or I'm talking about um, the actual girls that are participating in clubs. I don't even know if that's enough. Have they, you know, been do they have the privilege to even come up with the language for that, right? So that's something you learn in therapy. That's something you learn when you have healthcare as a constant. So um, I, I, I really, I mean, I, I see you guys and I see um, that what we do goes deeper than uh, you know the average work call right now. I think I, I would love to hear um, how some of those that awareness that we have all had in our experience is helping now too. So how is that, you know, maybe um, working as an advantage for both you as people and your organizations?
1: Um, um,
2: you want to go?
0: No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm glad you're both excited to answer. So <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, I, I think from our perspective, I, um, You know, there are four E's and the very first one, an E for is engagement. And I think that that idea of you really have to meet the person wherever they're at first Um, and you have to show them that you actually value them, that they're not just empty vessels that you're going to fix. You know, Um, I think the thing that we see every we don't see ourselves as a charity organization, uh, we are here to empower the students. They are, they already have that power. We're just helping them tap into these, um, intrinsic, uh, talents that they already possess. And so when you look at it from that framework, um, and this, this is a struggle that we, we deal with, with educators, cause we also, are consultants for educators, and we're supporting educators that are working with these students, is that people are so concerned about certifications. Um, and we work with a lot of employers as well. Uh, they're not concerned about certifications. They're, they're concerned about, can you actually do the work? Um, uh, what does your portfolio look like? But if you are not whole as a person, then it's very difficult to show up and be able to do the work. Um, there's so many things that have to happen until before our kids reach that point of uh, critical mass um, at which they start to really kind of burn from their own fire within. Um, and I feel like we keep that at the forefront of what we do and um, and that's really the secret sauce. I think that's the secret sauce of any uh organization that it has success with moving the needle with with youth of color.
0: Yeah, but I want to I want to ask Johanna because I know that's something, you know, the, the context of Comi madre as a holistic approach and a, is this speaking to you too that you you are already the experts in you know, how do you how do you encourage success? So, you know, just like Carl is saying, it was about meeting people where they're at, um, making sure they're okay. Is that something you're connecting with, too? Very much. Very much. I mean, that that spoke loudly to me, especially what, Carl, what you were
1: saying about empowering. um, I see our, you know, holistic approach as a work from within. Like you were saying, we're not We're not just we're not providing something to the student. We're not handing out anything. We're working from them from a young age, from within to empower them to, you know, to go at it, you know, achieving success in life with a mentality that I am able to do this. I have the tools, but I also deserve it. And it's my right. So when you see and I'll give you an example, I mean, that when it comes to the empowerment that you made me think about right away. So when it comes to, you know, students are getting ready to apply for a university and you're ready, getting ready to apply for college and you're a student of color and none of your family has gone through college. You haven't had the experience of being around a lot of people who have gone through college and there you are writing a letter. You have good grades, you're smart. But what I see oftentimes in in letters, you know, that uh, students coming from that background write. And I remember doing that myself as well at that age is framing it in a way of, you know, please, you know, I'm 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 a good student and I like proving themselves. I'm good. Please accept me. Please, you know, give me this opportunity. And one of the things that I often tell tell students when I read their letters, it's no, let's think about this in a different way. You are bringing something very valuable to whatever institution, you know, opens the door for you. And you have to think about why someone like you in that setting, it's crucial to making that, for instance, that university experience universal where people come out of there with that outlook and that that education. So if you approach that process from that empowered stance where what am I what am I bringing here why am I, why you know what kind of value do I add to this and and please pay attention to that that mentality translates into job settings into creating a portfolio into you know going and accessing resources, not from the lens and and this is this is a you know a vestige of colonialism, you know, and a colonized mentality, Uh, you know, when you're accessing any sort of service from the lens of please thank you, you know, for the handout. Thank you for the opportunity rather than this is something that's out there for me. I deserve it. I'm going to tap into this resource and and I'm going to do something with what I gain for those in my community. So it's crucial that I have access when people look at things through that lens. You know the doors that will open up their opportunities are much greater so that you know that empowering concept it's 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 very i mean i think it's it's very you know dear to to my heart and to my outlook on the world and the outlook that we have at the organization
0: yeah i feel like the 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 impact of covid you know that everyone has to um, you know realign their lives has put some things forward that uh, I know Carl and I working in, you know, digital, digital media and tech, Education felt like that should have been happening all along. We should have been handing out hotspots to students that didn't have um, nighttime access to do homework. Everybody should have uh, some sort of device at home. They're, you know, they're in a price point at this point where it should be budgeted into a school system, managed by the school system. So now that the, you know, the city of Austin is having to, Provide those resources by force. I'm I'm super excited about that, but whoa, that was a, a long time coming. Um, I I'm, uh, on that note, I I am you know we're particularly affected at Latinitas when we you know we're, we're particularly interested in representation and and of course in media and the tech sector, and so we are especially sensitive in. What are the stories that are coming at us, right? So a lot of it is uh, sometimes general information about, you know, being safe. Some of it is uh, <laughs> to as a counter to what's coming from, uh, you know, government channels that are, isn't so providing the clarity people want. But I, we're definitely getting a lot of news stories, advice, information, you know, how to do yoga at home. That's definitely coming from a lens of people with privilege, money, uh, of course, jobs they can do remotely. So I think, are there things you guys are, that are really, I mean, Carl, you mentioned it earlier that black and Brown communities are, are getting, you know, our impact, the death rates are impacting those communities higher. I mean, 70% of the, the deaths in new Orleans are African-American people. San Antonio is showing higher rates of Latinos. Um, yeah. So are there things that you guys feel like are, one, we're not hearing enough about or um, or, like I said, things that are happening now that should have happened long ago. So I'll let you guys run with that.
2: Um, I still don't see real discussion um, about the, the digital divide uh, that, that we have uh, in, in the city um, and a big part of, of what we, we talk about it uh, as the creative economy, uh, Latinitas, that, that's what's driving, that's what's driven um, our prosperity um, over the last, last really, 15 to 20 years.
0: The prosperity of Austin, the prosperity of the U.S. Of the mean? world.
2: I mean, really, if you look at who are, the, who are the, the Googles, the Apples, the think about what our economy, I mean, as bad as our economy is right now. Um, oil is pretty much dead for the foreseeable future, but imagine if we didn't have technology driving so much of our economy right now. It's, so I think we're reaching a a tipping point where the majority of our jobs are within the creative economy. Um, and that's not just tech, uh, that, that, that it's, it's really the whole gamut um, I feel like we as people of color have kind of been sold a false bill of goods that if you just take teach kids to code, then everything is going to be all right. Again, yeah. you have to teach the kid and then leverage technology to help them unpack, do their own personal asset mapping and. Um, and so
0: I learned that from one of your conferences and the, the most important motivation for the teens that were on a panel and one of your first conferences was, you know, does it doesn't mean something to them. Like, even if it doesn't mean anything to them, why are they doing it?
2: Right. You know, I didn't I didn't want to learn how to read a profit loss sheet, but I wanted to do e for you so bad I learned. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can relate. I,
2: can relate. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to like be able to write grants, uh, two of which I have due tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but I've become pretty darn good at it because I want to accomplish this thing that I care about. And if you can't, and the, the I know that we're talking about the the digital divide, but there's just not enough real conversation that is going on about what the true challenges are. Um, All the things that are going on in the turmoil that we are going through in this country right now really boil down to issues of race and class.
0: Yes, everybody hates to talk about that as much as there is a often a public discourse you know, it, it, it's very superficial, but when, when people really want to talk about exactly what's happening or that there are these, you know, uh, detritus type impact effects on youth and per- yeah, I, I, they don't really want to talk. They don't want to go through the discomfort part. Um, and then, and then if we don't go through the discomfort part, we'll never, we we'll, we're never going to like undo, um, these issues. Well and you know what Laura in that
1: sense I think COVID-19 it's it's really an opportunity it's like a mirror right it's an opportunity to to have those discussions because with what you were just talking about about you know African Americans disproportionately being the ones dying from this and right now
0: and then and it's because of those underlying nuanced Uh, stressors, uh, things like, you know, hypertension, diabetes, things that come from um, challenges of whatever, it could be poverty, but it also could just be like the stress and wear and tear of of, of racial bias, of class bias. Yeah, it's I mean, this is what we're seeing. And, you know, with African Americans,
1: what we're seeing with uh, Latinos, Only about 15% of Latinos get to work from home. I mean, say that again. Say that again, because I think 15% and I I read the statistic the other day. It might be even less than that, but about 15% of Latinos have the luxury of working from home and having a paycheck. So think about that means we are the people in the service industry. We're the people who provide, when you go to an, you go to an HEV, here in town, who do you see at the cash registers? Disproportionately is African Americans and Latinos. Um, so that means more exposure. That means, if if people one of those cashiers gets sick and they don't have healthcare or they have limited access or you know just they go to a, a household or in a family where there might not be ample space for people to self quarantine. I mean, you think of all those all those things. We are hit the hardest, but at the at the bottom of all of this is a history of systematic, you know, inequality, a history, you know, the the the, the repercussions of that history of that undealt with history of those undealt issues. They kind of are they're raw right now. They're in our faces. and this is an opportunity, a really good opportunity to bring those discussions to, you know, the spotlight and and to see, well, if we're going to address this, you know, how do we how do we really provide, you know, the, the connect people with the skills, with the services? You know, how do we not just connect those who need them? but how do we create awareness amongst those who are in a position of
0: power and privilege? And now I'm interested in like, what is the recognition going to look like? I keep seeing commercials of, you know, national, uh, I'll just be very general, right? National supermarkets, uh, you know, or, or big box stores that are congratulating their employees for sticking it out and staying in the store. And I'm thinking, and the CEO is on the, on the commercial and I'm just yelling at the TV. All right. What are you going to do about it? Did you get did you get the masks? What are you doing? About, are you going to get pay them a living wage? What are you? Do, are you going to stop having immigrant raids in your store? Are you going to I feel I, I I think sometimes it's put on our shoulders as we're nonprofit executive directors. But for some reason, I do feel like uh, we have a we have a broader window to the human experience in our in the communities we work in. We might see it even bigger than our, the actual communities we serve, like the girls in Latinitas, they may not be aware of how much, uh, their parents are taking on, uh, right now during this crisis. So yeah, do you get, do you both share that uh, responsibility, uh, that we can see things that maybe our traditional, uh, nonprofit foundations in the city can't, maybe even our, our city government can't quite get their arms around? Well,
2: if you I mean, I I don't know about you, but I have family members all over the spectrum. Um, you know, I have family members that are straight up in poverty. Um, and so th- the fact that, you know, people that you actually know people that and you maybe you've experienced those things. Makes you aware.
0: Yeah, um, I share that. I don't know, John, do you feel like you share that, too? I, I definitely. Yes. <laughs> you know, my brother and I were launched into college, but that wasn't all the experience of all my cousins. And my grandmother grew up in public housing. And that was a you know, that was an eye opener. Right. To see the experience of where she lived, who she lived with. um just, yeah. So, so yeah, same, same here, Carl. And how do we, I guess the challenge is like, yeah, how do you get a, a broader audience understand? I mean, <laughs> I
1: think you use the platforms that, you know, that, that you may have access to even if for a very short period of time to amplify in that message and translate that reality. So that those who are out there with a the capability of helping understand how to better help because like like you were saying i i i am I was one of our students, you know I, I was you know an immigrant and I came as an immigrant, I was my parents' translator, I was the one that helped them navigate in a different language in a different country. And so that like like the students we serve that put a double burden on me of, you know, being at times parent like and then being, a, you know, an adolescent at the same time and then trying to navigate this whole new system for myself. So when if we if we take into account having the privilege of, you know, moving you know in and out of different different worlds, uh, of the worlds of you know people who can bring support and bring funding to to the work that we do, and, and then also understanding the reality of our students, I think it puts a big responsibility to be able to get that message out clearly and loudly. Because if we don't, who's gonna do it, right? If you think about funders who might be wondering, okay, I'm gonna put you know five million dollars into, I don't know, an online learning platform, but then they haven't thought about that the people who, who are going to get that access to the platform might not have internet or might not have a computer or might live in one room with five other people. And they won't have the space to do that because they have to feed others and they can be a child and a student and be safe uh, in their home environment to just be able to focus on learning. So it takes people like us who can who can you know have access to both of those worlds to explain no no wait a minute rather than spending that you know those millions on this let's look at basic needs first let's make sure that you know that people are being fed let's make sure that you know maybe there's some access to childcare let's it, so it's breaking that down because I've seen it many times you know I've seen when you look into the world of philanthropy charity and sometimes things like organizations you know or foundations that would put a lot of money and let's take a big group of kids from you know inner city Chicago to um, Aspen for a ski trip <laughs> and yeah. and we're going to give them the experience of a lifetime yeah that might be fun and all but if that kid's family doesn't have food on the table and they come back how frustrating. Like, how how are they going to like navigate that? How how do you really address the issues from the roots? So I think that a lot of that it's is where we come in.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think something I say a lot, I find myself saying it a lot more is you can't eat a warm and fuzzy feeling.
0: <laughs> you got to trademark that you got to trademark that, Carl. I'm, I'm going to quote you, Carl. I'm going to write that somewhere. <laughs>
2: But it is so true because I I feel like there are organizations that are doing a good job of making students feel good. But if the kids are broke when they leave the program with no prospects, how long is that warm and fuzzy feeling really going to last? You know, these have to be tied to actual economic outcomes, and I feel like we've got and it's not just pure capitalism either. Um, the reason that we are able to have success is that we do treat the whole person. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and but the thing is, is that people are just, oh, we're going to make these kids feel good. Now I get paid to make these kids feel good, but they're still poor because that's where the real hard work comes in. Right. Right. Where, where where you start to look at these these economic outcomes um and the the needle is not being moved and I think we as people of color understand that now poverty pimps are, are exist of all stripes out there so don't don't you know not just because you're a, a leader a nonprofit leader of color does not necessarily make you uh invited to the cookout but I'm just saying that there is some natural insight that we have um, into the, the, the situations that that are our, 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 the people that we serve are, are facing and what's really going to move the needle. Um, I always think about, well, who benefits the most? Is it the leaders of the organizations that are benefiting the most Or is the kids getting these warm and fuzzy feelings?
0: Oh, my God. This is I feel like, you know, I needed this therapy today. And I so appreciate you both. And for saying that, because, uh, yes, I feel, you know, where when when Latinitas gets maybe excluded from some scope of funding where I feel like it's so this is such a natural fit. It's it's for girls. We're girls. I do forget that, uh, you know. We just don't fit in their in their deciding mechanism. If their deciding mechanism is that, yes, they want to they want to give a kid a coat and they want to be able to organize those coats by color and they want to be able to ask all their friends to donate the coats. And I'm not calling anyone out. I'm just using it as an example. They may. Feel, that's where they are, yes, they are having a joyous volunteer experience. They are feeling a, a serenity and it's assuaging their anxiety, their guilt, whatever it is. Well, it doesn't do anything for Latinitas. Yes, yeah, some uh, of, maybe one out of 30 Latinitas are chilly on a, on a winter day, but I feel like it's much more important that we are being deliberate in addressing, uh, how do you, how do you perceive yourself as a, as a leader? How do you perceive yourself as um, someone of value? How do you perceive your voice as something to contribute? I find that so much more important to address, but yes, if I, if the funding systems, if you know, that is so crucial, Carl, if it's all about, they get the warm and fuzzies. Well, I don't always qualify for their warm and fuzzies or Latinitas doesn't qualify. And so you're giving, you know, you, you're calming me down. I needed that calming um, because it, it also helps us as, as an organization just look to other places. But it is frustrating because often that is how the traditional you philanthropic community functions. Does that... Philanthropists get the warm and fuzzies that they need or want, and does that and then does that really translate to the community it's saying it wants to serve? Somebody wants to talk. I hear, I hear the the buzz because I know we all relate to this. Yeah, well, I'm thinking two two things. One is you know a lot of the warms and
1: fuzzies. You you open, Carl. You have no idea. You open a can of worms here <laughs> with your statement, but that warm and fuzzy feeling, oftentimes the majority of the times it's coming from a, you know, those, those, um, and, you know, those biases that people are, and that they hold their, you know, they're not aware of.
0: That these are poor kids, that they're sad kids. They, they're dying to code. They're so wish that they could code an app. That's, that's yeah. Maybe they, they might have, yeah, they, that might not be their first motivation. Um, and, or the, they already have the knowledge they just maybe yeah they don't have the the platform to do it so and for sorry. instance we,
1: we get asked a lot of the times what are you doing to prevent pregnancies <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're like well that's not our work When first of all our rate of or when i shared you know that the the rate of pregnancy has been less than one percent among our students they're like wow but But most, you know, my answer these days I've become, well, we're not, what we're doing to prevent pregnancies is to empower girls, you know, give them access to an education and empower their families where they will be focused on their goals because they know they can achieve them. Uh, But it's a lot of those mentalities out there and that where you end up not, not qualifying for the warm and fuzzy. It's because it's rooted in that. I think one of the, the approaches that I, you know, and. And, you know, I've been I've been a year in this role, so it hasn't been that long, but that I think we can take that would be more more helpful for our students. It's um, become thought partners with the funders. So to have engaged in the same way that I was talking about the college student that goes and say, please give me, you know, give me an in, give me a handout, help me out. I've, I've gone through a lot. I deserve this. It's turning around and being like, no, it's in your best interest to work with us because we understand this reality. It's in your best interest to open the doors for us and we can work with you on what your given strategy might look like because if you if you really want to impact this country in the future or the world you have to invest in those who are going to be leading those who are going to be the workforce of tomorrow those who are going to be the leaders you know the professionals that how are you going to expect to get to that if you are not you know, strategically working with those who provide service to those populations to empower them. I love,
0: and I love that you brought up teen pregnancy because I do think I had a funder communicate back to us because I, I, we did share that data, right? It's, you know, when you do enrichment, when you do the kind of hands-on work that E for Youth and Comi Madre does, it's just a natural, um, accelerator to a girl or a student or a boy going Oh, I, I have, there's so many other things that I can pursue and, and, uh, I can focus on and the things that I'm interested in. So maybe I'm not going to get all my whole worth from a partnership or relationship, um, you know, from sexual gratification. Right. So like, yes, there's this, uh, inadvertent thing that happens when a student like, learns who they are and learns what they're interested in is valuable. At the same time, the fact that people are asking that question, well, are they getting pregnant? Well, maybe they are. Are are we going to, are we going to shame these girls too? Are we going to go down that road where it's like, we're going to, again, that perception that all is lost, their life is over. Um, Because the reality is, is that happens in every you know, across all whatever economic levels. Um, And I had a funder pointed out to us. They said, uh, I think our language was, you know, very celebratory that we were doing things that influenced attitudes that a girl would postpone sexual behavior. And in fact, but it would, I guess the way it was coming across is that we're, we, uh, we don't, you know, we don't accept that uh, behavior. And in fact, That's part of the scope of understanding Um, these are these are the same kids. They are the same children as those a students that, you know, that go down every, you know, quote unquote, correct road. They just have maybe a a little bit of a different um, obstacle than their peers. The questions have bias, too. It's like, well, why? Why is that so important to you? Um, Yes, we don't want to see kids having kids but also that's you're coming that's coming from someone's point of view that had the maybe the the support system the financial access to be able to maybe or maybe the love at home that they didn't have to go to other spaces to get that kind of what to fill that hole um so yeah, I think like sometimes the questions say everything. Yes, and the questions reveal more than, than I do. I do yes. have to add one thing, and then and then Carl, I will leave it to you. But I ha- actually had an email today. Someone declined being on our board for pursuing a board application, and what she said is that she wanted to be part of something uh, that was inclusion for all. She felt that Latinitas was too exclusive, and I thought again. That statement reads to me, you don't understand what the heck's going on. We're, we're here because we are doing this extra because inclusion for all is not necessarily working or, and one size for all is not fitting everyone. So I, yeah, I feel like those statements tell me the entire story and then it's, you know, and it's frustrating.
2: Well, a lot, I, I do remember what I was thinking about in terms of aligning with funders and supporters, um, you know, we have a theory of change. And if you're not feeling that theory of change, then you don't need to give us any money. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really where where I've arrived. I spent the first five or six years of of what's now EFRA Youth uh, chasing after money. And. Sooner or later, we just had to put our uh, put our stake in the ground and say, hey, this is what we do. Uh, This is our theory of change. This is our logic model. This is how we uh, this is how we review it. And we're going to continue to just iterate on that. And if you're down with that, then let's let's talk. But if you're not, this is going to continue to happen with or without you. I mean that's 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 the feeling that I have at this point um and all funders or all money ain't necessarily good money yeah. um I think that you really have to start to um and I, and I think this is this this goes back to the capacity building for us as leaders of, of nonprofits that that are of color when uh, you don't have a lot of those types of uh, resources and connections when you start off. It's a really difficult thing to, to balance. Um, I, I want to
0: pause there because I did share that article with you both um, from nonprofit AF. It's a it's a blog. Yeah, that just less than 10 percent of foundation funding goes to community of color led organizations and and organizations that serve you know predominantly one one community of color or, or multiple and and um and, and and but I'm so yeah but I'm interested in how do you guys deal with that that it's just that's that's the, the matter of fact I do want to look onto the horizon of like so who is looking out for us who is broadening their diversity departments who is being inclusive um, at the same time I. I get really angry at the traditional foundation community. Well,
2: I I think also we have to be realistic is that 80 percent of the money that's given in philanthropy does not come from foundations. It comes from individual donors. Right. And so I know that we're speaking to um, that that audience of these more institutional types of funders. Um. But we have to realize that it's 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 also a game. People, people, it the giving is just as much as much about the giver as it is who they're supporting. And people at people that are at these large foundations, um, they want to give this money because it also brings prestige to them. So it's a game that we have to be able to play. You know that's why that's at first I thought you know a logic model is just a check mark, but then I started to really exercise it and use it to drive what we do, and it and it continues to take what we do to another level. So the basics of running a business, running an organization, are still going to be the basics, right? Um, but I feel like we as these leaders of organizations of. Uh, 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 as people of color, we have to really advocate for ourselves and also advocate for more resources uh, uh, being supplied to us so that we can build that capacity to be able to sustain um, uh, our our organizations. Frankly, if this um, COVID-19 issue happened any other year for E for youth, we'd be done. Yeah. I'm just keeping it real.
0: I, I w- last year was such a different story for us this year. I I'm in the same boat. I'm super grateful that it happened in 2020. Um, and I want to say, I want to thank you both. I, I love, you know, um, because I can get caught up in, uh, you know, how I'm processing bias or how I'm, you know, taking in the, do people see Latinitas? Like I want them to see it, but, um, Johnna, that recommendation that we are, it is, it is an experience. Not, you know, not only a, a shared thought leadership between the funder and the organization, but that that's a personal relationship too. Just that you have to build out those connections, and then Carl saying, you know, yeah, you know, get your get your house in order show show them what you got and and the logic model is is so clear in that and I want to offer something too I'm like what can I and I think I think for all of I'm I'm sure you you can all we all agree I think us always staying in our authenticity was really powerful even when we were I, I think as much as we face the challenges of inclusion still our time has come at Latinitas I I didn't think. 20 years ago that people would uh, agree that things should be bilingual, whether it be the programming or any kind of, you know, content we produce, um, that we would stay just with girls and and still like the boys would be welcome, but that we would still keep the girls as a priority. And even though we updated our mission to say all girls, I mean, gee whiz, our name is Latinitas. Like <laughs> we can't hide, you know, that woman, feeling like it wasn't inclusive to all. I get it. It says Latinitas. And I, I'm really happy we stayed with that name. Um, because the world is, there's new, there's new enclaves of the world that are looking at us there. There's new power structures that are noticing us first. Um, so I want to kind of, I want to tie it all in. I want to, you know, be conscious of everyone's time you are, you know, for our audience listening, uh our our guests today are some of the busiest people in Austin doing some of the most important work for the uh to make Austin a place for everyone to to be, you know, successful. And so maybe you could, you could both share something good you're going to take from the COVID experience. It could be personal, it could be professional. Um and then also if you want to share, I mean, we all come we're representing culture or media or representation. If there's something that you've been watching or listening to that you want to share with the audience that is helping you get through this or that maybe, you know, is even tying into the COVID experience. So, yeah, what do you think your your takeaway is going to be from this? It's going to be an improvement on your, your life or your work.
2: Um, from my perspective, I think uh, the... A big part of what we are doing uh, with this uh, Austin Digital Heritage Project uh, with uh, providing this training and employment for uh, college age youth of color that are collecting and curating um, oral histories um, and all of the work that with the VR Remix uh, storytelling curriculum that we provide for Latinitas and hopefully for um, Comi Madre we're also doing some support for uh, creative action, is that it's seeing for for us how we can continue to operate within our wheelhouse, but also be able to provide a lot of a lot of other organizations uh, with value, valuable support that is going to help them move forward in their mission and uh, better serve. Uh, youth of color of all ages throughout throughout the city, um, and so I think we believed that before, but I think we 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 it now has become very very much apparent. Um, and also, our this is this this uh, this has exposed really how broken our economic system is. Um, that we are really um, doing some. We're we're living in a way uh, with our economic model that's not truly sustainable. Um, we have, and uh, I st- I still believe in capitalism, um, but I think that we have this false sense of um, of of merit. Or meritocracy, or, or American exceptionalism, that these folks just because you have some money, then well, you really did everything right, and um, you 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 really you really figured things out, and you you work harder than other people, and that's not necessarily true. And let's be real: is that um, when you have money, it makes it easier for you to extract the value from everybody else, yeah. from, from, from labor, um, from, and so I, and I'm going to, just a little bit of an aside, but uh, I was looking at an article about, uh, on vice in, um, this, uh, this, this, uh, condo, um, building in Toronto, where something like 60 something percent of the, the apartments in this place were all for Airbnb, so, if you think about that, all the people that live and work in that city, what does that do for their cost of living? What does it do when we have these 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 these, these, these organizations that are making billions and the majority of their workforce is receiving public assistance? Why why are we bailing them out? And so, I really feel like we have to be willing to challenge ourselves um, about our economic model and the whole the whole way that the table has been set in terms of the, the, the discourse. We have this false sense of what is left and, and, and what is right. Uh, what is liberal? Um, you know, the the spectrum of thought is really about right of center to way, way, way right AF. Okay, and so we I, I really feel like this is an opportunity to look at our economic model and really question our values um, in a real genuine way that looks out for everybody and doesn't continue, continue to perpetuate this myth this false this this myth of uh, exceptionalism that we've been living by
0: right on. <laughs> I, uh, Joanna, I want to put it to you. Um, something good you're going to take from this? Yes. Well, and, and first, I, everything that Carl just
1: said, I, I agree 100 percent. So um, to, you know, to just add to that. And, and this is I always like to, just because of my own background, bring a historical perspective. I mean, when we look back in history and we look at, at this, you know, pivotal moment when um when people have come together to enact change, to demand change, to because there's no choice <laughs> but to do it. I think we are living one of those moments. Um uh, not not just now right now with the impact of COVID and, and all the things that we're doing to take care of people and all the inequities are being exposed, all the all these skeletons in the closet, you know in 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 a society that like to believe that has it, it had dealt with a lot of issues, they're all coming out right now. But this is gonna get, I think, even more raw after yeah. the the scare from the pandemic passes and we are left with the economic disaster, right? That that it's gonna ensue. So like in any other point in history where you have you know where you have a crisis moments like you know mass crisis moments this is an opportunity for um, people to collaborate to work together I mean I really really appreciate Laura that you've created that space that you've invited us um, you know in in the podcast but also outside of the podcast as to how do how do we work together how do we better serve the people that we're working with how do And it's not just to serve a sector of the population. By doing that, we are planting seeds to change a narrative, to enact change at a larger scale for the whole country. And so one thing that I'm taking away is I'm coming out of this kind of invigorated. Like you said, this is therapy too, and empowered uh, with this, this sense of that we are getting it right by the work that we're all doing because we're working from the inside out with our students. We're working from the inside out with our families to strengthen them, to empower them, not just with the feel good part, but also with the very tangible skills, with a very tangible connections, with a very tangible opportunity so they can change the narrative of their communities, you know, for, for one of success. But but in order to do that, no one ever did that alone. So this whole idea of, you know, meritocracy that you work hard enough, you'll get there. When you when you look at any case of success, any anyone who's quote unquote made it, anyone who's done well for themselves. It's never a soul you know, lonely process. It's never just one person. There's always a community backing that person up. There's always people along the way lifting them up and opening doors. So, thinking from from that perspective, we need we need these collaborations more than ever. You know, we need to not be isolated in order to uh, really enact change that will last, that will change our structures that have continued to perpetuate these inequities for centuries
0: I so appreciate the both of you I um, and that's probably been my takeaway that um, as a founder I think you get into this space of uh, oh well I have to figure this out and um, what I'm realizing is that um, we've done the work and we've done the groundwork that there is a there's a there's different like tiers of, of um, innovation going on right now I, I, I mean, I'm looking at my staff and I am remembering, I, I think my good tech, you know, an important takeaway is, can I let go of micromanaging as a founder? Can I get, <laughs> let go of micromanaging as an executive director, CEO? <laughs> um, it's, it's been a harsh lesson. During, it was, I feel like this has been the final nail of letting go of that and watching mm. those systems flourish and watching, so we, uh, yeah, like this is gonna, we're putting, into the hands of those that we think need a lot of guidance uh, from my son, who has been pretty apt at self pacing through his school lessons to um, the girls at Latinitas that are doing um, like a lesson from home and sending it into their leader to the 20 year olds that work for Latinitas that are using their ingenuity to be able to continue to serve um and just be present as a mentor. Uh, so that I, I I really am grateful that yes, has comment that that's that's just one small ecosystem in this, but that it is and, and you know, as a as a founder, you get singular recognition sometimes. Oh Laura, look what you did. And it's I wish holy moly could people actually see the hundreds, the thousands of people that were involved in the making of this. Um I I am, and I think that uh, extends to uh, organizations that support us. Um, The volunteers, I mean, people are checking in with us. What can they do in the capacity that they can do it? And it's really touching my heart Um, because, yes, Joanna, we, we have some, as you know, we have to have the foresight for the organization and we're looking to the horizon and going, oh my God, how is this going to pan out? Um, you know, Carl. We we. You know, what is this going to look like for the agencies that support us? But if this is any indication, you know, working together now, how it's going to look like then, I, I feel some comfort in that. So, thank you both for spending this time. I think we need to do this again. I think. Yes. Do you want to share a quick, like, what's your media go to right now? I I started watching Shit's Creek because they feel like it's it's this peculiar privileged family who's been plopped down uh, in, at square one to start over. And I feel like it's very, uh, it hints to the experience now. you ha- If you had a routine, it's been undone. So do you guys have shows that you're watching that are um, giving you comfort or maybe reflecting what's going on? You know, Hentified. <laughs> oh, yeah, See, I had already I, watched it. I wish I could watch it again with fresh
1: eyes. I yes, no, it's. I mean, what is this? I mean, it's called Hentified. Like people G Oh,
2: okay. I started watching that. Uh, yes. Yeah,
1: it's it's great because I mean, given especially given, I started watching it right before all of this, <laughs> you know, COVID nineteen things happened. But um, it's. It exposes so much of that, you know, what you were just talking about, Carl, the the, the economic system, the economic mess, and how, and how it's, you know, it it's our, our current economy has reorganized our society or is reorganized in, in a way where we're doing away with uh, certain communities, where we are putting um, stressors on family, where we're we're widening that divide you know of the haves and have-nots and that's that's uh, the show like embodies that and there's a lot of humor too but the one you were talking about Laura Schitt's Creek that I I love that because that's exactly what's happening for a
0: lot of people just you know in a
1: in a hyperbole but yes
0: starting for you know for them it's definitely like yes yeah, it's, it's campy it's like but yes having to reimagine what your you know the meaning of your life is and also how you live it. So Carl, what are you watching? What are you watching? Ed? Maybe it's more, what am I watching? Is it, is it more esoteric than what we're watching or uh you know I've watched
2: Shits Creek. Uh I started watching Hintified. There's so many things that are on uh right now. Um you know <laughs> it's funny cuz we're in this dystopian uh future I've been watching uh, on Epics War of the Worlds. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's not exactly uplifting necessarily. Like levity. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, I really it, it's it's oh we uh, we watched a really good movie Uncorked. Um, not that that necessarily has anything to do with um, COVID nineteen. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, just uh, entertainment, um, how really essential that is. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, escapism um, is also super important now or just, yeah, um, to again, it's very much the experience of staying in the moment. And so being able to just stay in the moment and um, I'm OK, I'm there's food in the fridge. I'm watching a lighthearted comedy. Everything's OK right now. That's, that's part of <laughs> that's part of our resiliency for me. Really,
1: what I go to is, you know, I live with my mom, who's late 80s and my daughter, who's seven. It's putting on salsa videos. <laughs> and doing like dance <laughs> dance, dance with, like and dancing the three of us you know doing like or dance salsa workouts and just having a blast and laughing and it really it really you know it brings a lot of relief to you the tension and the stress of running an organization and all of that and you end up the day in a light note and
0: a little bit more fit than before <laughs> so. it is it is like a, but yeah sort of the appreciation of of the arts or specific music too. I have to say, I, I like to crank it out the front door too and let all the neighbors take part as well. As if I'm in, you know, in Washington Heights on the Upper West Side, you know, of, of New York City. I like to give that vibe and energy to to Austin, you know, Central East Austin. Well, thank you both. This has been excellent. Thank you. I think we should do it again sometime. And uh, I, I appreciate uh, everybody's input and, and I hope it's value to those who are going to be listening.